Hong Kong security law, the defense strategic update, and China's wolf warriors on Twitter. This is Policy Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Nelson. It's been an exciting week at Aspie with the launch of the 2020 Aspie Conference, Strategic Vision. The conference will be held virtually this year with 17 sessions over July and August on a range of topics featuring speakers Samantha Power, Carl Bildt, John Howard, Minister for Defence Linda Reynolds, and more. And the great news, it is all available for free. For the full agenda and event details, visit the ASPE website. Registrations are open now. In this week's episode, we discuss the recent defence strategic update. Anybody who's a supporter of a you know, strong defence and investment in defence would have to see the strategic update as a big win for defence. And China's wolf warrior diplomats on Twitter. Um, and even the People's Liberation Army talking about how they want to jump the Great Firewall and join their wolf warrior diplomats out there to sort of fight for China's uh, voice in the world. But first, Aspie's Louisa Bochner speaks to Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, China reporter at Axios, about the Hong Kong security law and what this latest move from Beijing means. Thank you so much for joining us, Bethany. So the world has been watching Hong Kong super closely for the past year. Uh, The proposition of the now infamous extradition treaty has prompted widespread organized protests in Hong Kong that continued well into this year. And now last week, a new national security law has come into effect, which involves some extreme, to say the least, articles, which are saying, which some are saying in effect, in democracy in Hong Kong. So could you tell me a little bit about this national security law and what does it mean for Hong Kong? Sure. So it's a it's pretty lengthy. Uh, law has more than 60 articles, but at the same time, it's very vague. So it, it offers sort of sweeping um it lists a number of, of crimes in a sort of sweeping way, but but doesn't get into very many details. So it, it says, for example, colluding with a foreign power, a foreign government, uh, you know, separatism, terrorism. But the way it defines them uh, is is just uh, it's incredibly broad. So, for example, colluding with a foreign power, it says that simply asking, simply making a request. Um, to a foreign government or a foreign inter- like an international institution, uh, maybe maybe they mean the United Nations. Who knows what they mean by that? It is actually under the national security law considered to be colluding with a foreign power. So that seems pretty specifically targeted at the people in Hong Kong, the pro democracy activists who had come to the U.S. and met with U.S. government officials and elected officials in Congress to tell them about the situation, or even people in Hong Kong who had called on the U.S. to help them, to you know, protect them, to sanction, uh, you know, to, to sanction Hong Kong and, and Chinese government officials who were complicit in this. That seems, for example, to now be illegal. Maybe. Who knows? Um, there's another, uh, so, so terrorism is another, um, another one. And it defines terrorism very, very broadly. For example, damaging a, a, a vehicle is is considered terrorism if you do it with some, you know, as part of a protest. What I'd like to tell people is that this is not a national security law. This is an anti-protest law. 
This is an anti-democracy law. And that's a really important distinction to make because these authoritarian countries like to use the language of democracies, the language of the rule of law. And so we're kind of forced to adopt that language. But this is not a national security law at its heart. Hong Kong does not have a terrorism problem, for example. It's really interesting. You're talking about the vagueness of some of these articles. And you wrote an article yesterday um, in Axios um, about uh, Article 38. And if it wasn't so um, dark, it would almost be comical because it it talks about how it applies to offences committed against Hong Kong outside of the region by a person who is not even a permanent resident of the region. So what does that actually mean? How can the CCP possibly police people who aren't even in Hong Kong? Well, they have many ways of doing it. And in some ways, this is merely a codification of some of their practices, uh, that they, things they've already been doing. So, for example, um, you know, they, the Chinese Communist Party tends to view people of Chinese heritage who live abroad and have foreign citizenship as still being Chinese, and they may harass them or harass their relatives to try to prevent them from engaging in you know, pro-democracy or anti-CCP speech or behavior abroad. So we've seen that. Um, I would say there are really two things that are pretty that are unprecedented about this article. And one of them is just as you said, that it applies this extraterritoriality to all people. Now I spoke with several different lawyers, three or four different lawyers um, about Article 38. And they all said, I mean, no question, this is what this means. It, it literally applies to every single person on the planet. That's how to read it. And that's how it should be read. That's clearly what they intended to, to write with this, with this article. So what does that mean? Well, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, they're about to, I don't think it means they're about to go try to invade, you know, foreign countries and physically, you know, come after these people, you know, anyone who tweets that they don't like Xi Jinping. I, I don't think that's initially what it means. I think it has two effects. And the, the first one uh, is that, uh, to quote Donald Clark, a lawyer at George Washington University, he said, this is intended to put the fear of God into China critics the world over. So I think it's it's fair to say that we're going to see maybe an increased pressure for self-censorship or an increased fear. So for how they might enforce this, so what I said, you know, they're not going to go, it's not a, a mass, they're not going to launch a massive invasion, but they have a lot of power. If, if you tie this enforcement to Hong Kong, and if you view any, any uh, money, any assets, any family, any travel that is tied to Hong Kong, there's quite a bit of leverage there. Um, so if you are a prominent critic of the CCP and you have a layover through Hong Kong, that's a risk now. That's a clear and obvious risk. If you have um, a bank account in Hong Kong, if you own a house in Hong Kong, if you have a business in Hong Kong, but you don't go there, uh, the national security law specifically says that people who uh, break the law, um, the authorities can seize their assets. So let's just you know take this to its logical conclusion. If you're based somewhere outside of Hong Kong, but you, you say something or organize something or do something that the Hong Kong authorities determine to be against the law, and you have these assets there, they, they could seize them. So this is the leverage they have over you. 
Um, and it's not just you as an individual. So let's say that you don't have any assets there and you don't intend to travel through Hong Kong at any time soon, but you have a lot of friends, you have family members, you have a wide circle of acquaintances. One thing that the Hong Kong national security law permits or that it creates is it gives Chinese secret agents the right to operate with impunity in Hong Kong. And I, I had an interview with Nathan Law, who is a pro-democracy activist who has now fled. And he said that this law makes it possible for a Chinese secret agent to detain any of your, anybody, so any of your acquaintances, if you're a target, they can detain them, torture them. If, you know, if they want to, they can blackmail them or otherwise coerce them into whenever they return to where you are to spying on you, collecting information on you, putting pressure on you. I mean, this is something that is well known as a, as a practice in mainland China. Now, there's no reason to say that this won't happen in Hong Kong. So there's really quite a wide net to, to get people. There's, there's other ways also to enforce it. And I think this would be probably reserved for very high-level targets, but extradition requests. So right now, Hong Kong has extradition treaties with around 19 countries, uh, give or take a little bit. Um, so Canada just announced that they were suspending their extradition treaty. Uh, I think that uh, several, you know, numerous other countries are likely to follow in their, in their steps because I mean, clearly uh, the whole purpose of the law is to politicize the judicial system. So that, that could be one route. They can send extradition requests to countries with whom they do not have extradition treaties. Mainland China has been known to do that fairly widely, uh, for example, to go after Uyghurs who have fled. Another way that they can try to enforce this is through Interpol. So China is known to use Interpol red notices against people that it views as criminals, whether they, they are criminals in a, you know, in, a, in a true sense or in a political sense. Um, Interpol red notices uh, have a very difficult time legally distinguishing between those. It, it's, um, it's, not a, it's not a perfect mechanism. And so mainland Chinese um, police have issued red notices for, um, for Uyghur dissidents. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and other kinds of political dissidents. So it's entirely possible we may see the Hong Kong authorities issuing maybe an Interpol red notice for people like Nathan Law, hard to say. So those are some different ways. Uh, now let's talk about in the, in the digital sphere. This is very important. So the, the national security law calls for management of the internet. Earlier this week, uh, they clarified what they meant by that and issued um, the powers that they had given the Hong Kong police force, which include the right to demand data from any uh, publisher, any online publisher, any tech company operating in Hong Kong. They can demand you know, personal uh, user information. They can also demand, uh, you know, require that content be removed. That's also known as censorship, right? So what are the companies that have major, um, major operations in Hong Kong? Well, Google has a big data center in Hong Kong. Facebook operates there. Twitter operates there. Many, uh, m many tech companies have operations there. So, you know, let's, let's talk about Google, for example. They have, like I said, a big data center. It's hard to just up and move a data center. That is a potential form of leverage and this is just theoretical. I don't know, you know, what Google, what decisions Google will make. Um, but the Hong Kong authorities could come to Google and say, legally, you must hand over this data. And if, you know, Google continues to refuse, um, you know, what can you do? So it's, you know, maybe you're located in the United States or in South Africa 
or in England. Um, and you know, Hong Kong authorities could ask Google for information about you. So this is some of the enforcement mechanisms. And I think it'd be really e- interesting to watch um, as those big tech companies have now sort of temporarily stopped complying with the with those data requests. And it'll be interesting to watch will they cave to that pressure and will they continue to comply. Or, or um, will they be sort of standing up for those so-called Western um, democratic values? I think to, to wrap it up, I just wanted to kind of talk a bit more broadly here. So just to, to, to finalise, like Australia's diplomatic position on China has really escalated in the last few days. Um, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has issued travel warnings to China and, and said that Australians may be at risk of arbitrary detention, which is a, a real escalation of the sort of diplomatic language what does this all mean for the world and China and, and what does this mean for um, how, how we're going to be seeing uh, countries like Australia and the US interact um, with China from here on out? I think that really at this point we're on a collision course with China and I'm, I can't speculate as to the nature of that collision. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say we're going to go to war with them or something, but it is becoming increasingly clear that the Chinese system and a Western liberal democratic system are incompatible. And that's very difficult for people to accept. Um, and it's also very difficult to deal with because our systems are intricately linked. Our economies are very closely linked. We have very, you know, many deep people to people ties. I mean, in the U.S., there's 360,000 Chinese students studying at our universities. So what you have is, is this, um, these geopolitical forces that are really coming, uh, together or more like coming apart in a very dramatic way. It, it seems pretty clear that, especially with Article 38 in the Hong Kong national security law, that China is making a big move. They're saying, look, we think, we believe that we have the power to enforce our speech norms on the rest of the world. That's what this law means. And the only, really the only way for Western countries to really draw a line there and push back against that is to do it together. We have to be able to stand firm together. Uh, there's there's been some very some early moves towards this. There's the Interparliamentary uh, Alliance on China (IPAC) that recently formed. I, obviously, Australia and the U.S. have very close intelligence sharing partnerships, but we have a lot we have a lot of work to do. Um, to, to again quote Nathan Law, who I spoke to last week, he said that countries need to form a united front to hold back an authoritarian China. And I think that's what we have to do. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. Everyone's going to be watching it very closely, um, especially, you know, Taiwan and, and, and the world will be kind of watching this space. Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you, Louisa. Next, two of Aspie's grumpy strategists, Marcus Hellyer and Malcolm Davis, give us their thoughts on the recently announced Defence Strategic Update. Hello, Malcolm. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Marcus? I'm very well. We're uh, going to continue the conversation about last week's big announcement, the 2020 Defence Strategic Update and the supporting force structure plan. Some of our colleagues, including Peter Jennings, have already uh, made a few comments about it. And now it's our turn. Indeed. And now that some of the excitement has died down, we've got down into into the weeds of getting through this document. And it's sort of like uh, the day after the party, the night before sort of thing, where we're all feeling a bit hungover and thinking, well, maybe that wasn't so good as we thought it was. But Marcus, I'll let you talk about the funding aspects, and then we'll go into uh, a debate about what our thoughts are on the new capabilities and indeed what is new in this document. Okay. Well, well first of all, I'll just say we're going to change 
the cost of defence a little this year. So we're not going to wait until the budget in October to put it out. We're actually going to put out Part A in the next few weeks, looking specifically at the defence strategic update and the four structure plan. So uh, our analysis will be in detail there. But uh, some high-level comments about the budget. I think, you know, Anybody who's a supporter of a you know strong defence and investment in defence would have to see the strategic update as a big win for defence. So coming into the update, there was a lot of questions about what the impact of COVID-19 would be on the defence budget. And the short answer is there has been absolutely no impact whatsoever. So even though GDP is likely to take a hit with a consequent impact on government revenue, and we've seen huge increase in uh, the deficit, of course, uh, that doesn't, ha- that hasn't had any impact on the defence budget whatsoever. So back in 2016, the government laid down a fixed 10-year funding line for defence. It's not coupled to 2% of GDP. That's a bit of, people keep referring to 2% of GDP. That's a bit of a furphy. Actually, the government said we don't want to tie the defence budget to 2% or any percent of GDP because if GDP goes up, your budget goes up. If it goes down, your budget goes down. What we want to do is give defence funding certainty. So they gave defence a 10-year fixed funding line, which uh, grew back in the day, back in 2016. It would have hit um, 2% of GDP. Now that line would have actually grown past 2% of GDP because GDP hasn't grown very much. So a lot of there was a lot of speculation about would government stick to that funding model or would they dial it back a bit and actually bring it back closer in line with 2% of GDP. If they did that, defence actually would have taken a huge budget hit. It would have been billions of dollars a year by the time we got to the middle of the 2020s. So that uncertainty has been put to rest and government has recommitted to that funding model and extended it out another four years to the end of the next 10-year cycle. And what does that mean for defence? Well, it's actually a pretty generous funding model. If you look at the next three years, that defence funding will grow by about 7% next year, 9% the year after that, and another a further 9% the year after that. So, you know, in these days of, you know, COVID, you know, that's pretty generous funding model. There's probably no other agencies in government which are getting that amount of money. What do you think of the likelihood that they're going to have to push it up further, uh, given that this is re- this this document is really all about China? Let's not kid ourselves. Um, so as the situation deteriorates in the future, where do you see us going with funding? Well, you know, a number of us here at ASPE have written and said we should be probably spending more along the lines of what we were spending in the the peak of the Cold War, which is around about 3% a year. Uh, I think that is politically unsellable at the moment because of COVID and everybody uh, tightening belts. So I think purely from, you know, political sellability, this is about as good as it's going to get for the next couple of years. But is that actually enough? Well, you know, I've written a few things saying I'm sceptical about whether that funding envelope will pay for the force outlined both in the 2016 white paper and now this force, which adds even more things to it and takes virtually nothing away from it. I'm sceptical you can get there on this funding model. Now, I know Defence has worked really hard on their cost estimates. You know, they put a lot of time and effort in trying to make sure everything adds up and they they are very confident it does add up. Um, But I'd say I've also worked in this game and uh, 
there's a lot of unforeseen things that always occur that you can never predict that mm. will you know change the feasibility of that model. So mm. I, I'm I'm skeptical, but you know I don't have access to the underlying cost models and details. So you know. Take defence's word for it. Take my word for it. You know, it's probably a bit in between. So, I mean, if we do see a deterioration in the environment, the, d- the demands a rethink on funding. Uh, do you see a potential annex to the defence strategic update appearing, perhaps in twenty twenty two, where we have another look at funding and and say, okay, we need to spend a bit more. Look, I know our colleague Michael Shoebridge has, has suggested this is a first stab at an update. Um, you know, the point he makes is that. You know, and I agree that defence hasn't really quite cracked the nut of saying we can no longer rely on 10 years of warning time, we've got to do things faster, yet you look at the model here, so much of their funding is tied up in mega projects that don't deliver for a, at least a decade. So it's kind of hard to go, well, hey, where do you get the money from to do things quickly if you're still committed to those mega projects. Mm. And so I think more work needs to be done in order to work out exactly how to do things faster. Mm. When you look at the schedules, you know, very high level schedules in the force structure plan, there is new stuff there, but it tends to come later Mm. in the decade. So the trick that defence, I think, still hasn't quite resolved is how to do, acquire more capabilities sooner if Mm. you still... Um, locked into the big, long-term, slow-delivery mega-projects. Because the, the strategic update and the post structure plan isn't really a white paper. It's meant to be a, a follow-on to the 2016 white paper, but it's verging on a white paper, and really that's what we need is something fundamental to take us forward. Is it a white paper or not a white paper? Look, I'm, I'm treating it as a white paper, you know, mm. because in a, in a sense, in terms of the detail around the force structure, around the budget this supersedes the 2016 white yep. paper. So as far as I'm concerned, this is essentially the same as a white paper. Mm. Um, but I do think Defence will probably need to provide, not wait another five years to give an, a further update. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the capability investments. And obviously the key thing uh, that leapt out of this strategic update and the force structure plan was strike, a long-range strike. Um, you know, it was 2010 when we retired the F-111, and now the big news coming out of this was the acquisition of the long-range anti-ship missile system for the Super Hornets, and the discussion in the document about further long-range strike capabilities, including research and development that could lead down the track to hypersonic weapon systems, uh, discussion about uh, long-range strike for naval and land forces. What's your thoughts on that? Well, um, you know, the US Marine Corps Commandant recently put out the US Marine Corps' new force structure plan and its view of themselves. And in it, he said, we are, we've entered the age of missiles. And I think uh, our defence force was a little slow, but you look at the funding in here and they are certainly catching up. There is so much money in here for, for, for guided weapons and missiles. It's really quite incredible. Mm. There's land-based missiles, there's air-launched missiles, there's sea-launched missiles. And then hidden up the back in the enterprise section of the force structure plan, there's another 20 to 30 billion sort of a kind of wedge or a slush fund for guided weapons. So there is an awful lot of money in here. Some of it's not new news. So the LRASM, the announcement that the weapon we're acquiring is LRASM is relatively new. But the idea that we would get a a new, more capable, long-range maritime strike weapon was already in the 2016 plan. Mm. Simply, Mm. this is the weapon they've They've chosen. chosen. But um, 
So there's a mix of old news and new news. And to me, the big news is there's a lot of money in here for weapons. Now, the detail is not quite clear in a lot of cases. So there's sort of eight to nine billion for research in hypersonics, but that goes out to the 2040s. Mm. You know, I would hope we're actually acquiring some hypersonic weapons well before the end of that research program Mm. in the 2040s. So Mm. big picture, very intriguing. Once you get down into the details, Mm. a lot of question marks. For me, I mean, obviously the strike aspect is important, but for me what's new in this is in the maritime space it's discussion about integrated undersea surveillance system, which is welcome, is something we need to do, and also a recognition of the importance of large unmanned underwater vehicles and unmanned service vehicles because that, although it's not necessarily funded and it's not sort of highly visible, that is what really could transform our naval force structure uh, and bring it in line with what the Americans are doing with distributed lethality and uh, robotic warships and so forth. Yeah, I I noticed that too, Malcolm. I know we're both fans of uh, moving to more autonomous systems more quickly, Mm. but I just note that that funding line doesn't actually start until 2025. Which is way too late. So we're still five years away from serious uh, investment in that space. Now, I know in in the space area, you were sort of pleased in some regards and disappointed in others. What's your takeaways uh, around space? Look, I think that this uh, document nudged the space domain debate further. It recognised space as a domain in its own right, which is great. It talked about sovereign satellite capabilities for communications and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. What it didn't do was go the next step and say, yes, we need sovereign responsive space launch capabilities for Australia. That would have been a logical thing to do. And for some reason, they held off on doing that. And I'm mystified as to why, because they talk in the document about the importance of space control and ensuring that we have access to space. Well, if you want to have access to space, you've got to be able to launch your own satellites. And we didn't do this. Do you you think um, the thinking is they're relying on the space agency and the private sector to develop those capabilities? I, I think so, but, you know, there's no reason why they couldn't have alluded to it in the document and that would have been a big step in policy terms forward. It, it's something that's missing. They needed to be a little bit bolder uh, and more ambitious here, in my opinion, uh, because they missed that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, at least now space is, we don't have a space force like mm-hmm. the US does, but it is a, uh, a heading Heading in the right direction. Of of its own, so with its own funding line. And I also note that uh, under the space heading, it doesn't include the surveillance satellite, which is, I think, in another category. But if you chuck that in, there's quite a lot of money, you know, there for space. Yeah. Look, as I said, it's a forward step, but a small one. And I think that one of the things I'll be doing is pushing the debate down the continuum towards eventually an ADF space command with its own responsive space launch capabilities. All right, and thank you, Malcolm. I'll just once more give another plug to uh, the cost of defence, which we'll be putting out in in maybe about a month's time, and we'll be focusing very closely on defence strategic update and the new force structure plan. Looking forward to reading up, Marcus. Thank you very much. Thank you, Malcolm. Finally, Tom Uren and Fergus Ryan from Aspie's International Cyber Policy Centre discussed Twitter, China's Wolf Warrior Diplomats and the Great Firewall. Good morning, Fergus. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Great. So a little while ago, uh, Jacob, myself and many other people at the centre produced a report where we looked at some data Twitter had given us and Twitter had identified a really large group of accounts that were 
basically being operated by the Chinese state and they were denigrating the Hong Kong protesters. They hate a particular Chinese billionaire called Guo Wenguai and they've also attacked other basically Chinese dissidents. Um, and these are a group of accounts that are actually operated by the state. At the same time, we've had a group of foreign ministry mostly accounts operating on Twitter as well that are legitimate, they're authentic accounts, and they're getting some traction on Twitter. And you've been thinking about this. You, you produced something, you wrote a piece in Foreign Policy. Yeah, I wrote a piece in uh, Foreign Policy that came out yesterday, um, the title of which is China's Online Warriors Want More Gates in the Firewall. And what I've done in that piece is I've taken a look at the discussions and debates going on inside China about how effective uh, these this communication strategy has been. And what I found is that various stakeholder groups from think tankers, media professionals, um, and even the People's Liberation Army talking about how they want to jump the Great Firewall and join their wolf warrior diplomats out there to sort of fight um, for China's uh, voice in the world. What to me is interesting about that is those authentic voices seem a lot more effective than the kind of confection that we saw given to us by Twitter. Yet at the same time, I mean, Chinese users can't use Twitter and there's, to me, at least a really strong sense that if you are using Twitter, you're in a sense being sanctioned by the state. You're allowed in this meaning of the word sanctioned. Yeah, I think that's generally true. Um, in the past, we've seen all sorts of different types of Chinese people on Twitter, um, including dissidents, um, uh, but also nationalists. But increasingly, we're seeing that the more liberal voices aren't allowed on Twitter, and they're the ones who get in trouble for posting what they really think on that platform. But, you know, there are voices inside China that uh, may surprise people to hear that people like Hu Xijin, who's the editor of the fiercely nationalistic uh, Global Times tabloid, he has argued for many years now that um, Chinese people should be allowed to jump the Great Firewall. Now, the sort of subtext of, of that, of when he says that, is that people that he likes and people who he agrees with should be the ones who can jump the Great Firewall. But he actually makes the argument that the Great Firewall um, should only ever be thought of inside China as a temporary measure and that once China wins this uh, big battle to win more of a share of voice, uh, and it's a sort of struggle that they call global discourse power. Once they have global discourse power that's commensurate with their status in the world, then the firewall can go down. And so I think what's going on there is voices like Hu Shijin, are, what they're really arguing is that as China uh, gets more powerful, it's going to be able to flex its muscles and really genuinely affect how China is discussed in the world. And uh, in doing so, the Great Firewall won't be as necessary anymore. Yeah, so you said before that there was um, that liberal voices, and I guess liberal in this sense means that voices that we would kind of agree with, perhaps, 
uh, that there's less of them on Twitter nowadays. What's your sense of the, do you have a sense of what the population in China feels about access outside China through the Great Firewall? Do they want to be on Twitter? Well, they uh, they do. I mean, um, a great example of this um, was recently when uh, Hua Chunying, who um, is the head of the information department at China's foreign foreign affairs ministry, she uh, took to Twitter and uh, sent a tweet saying, "I can't breathe," and she was screenshotting another tweet by a U.S. State Department spokesperson. Now, when the Global Times... And that's a reference to George Floyd in the States. And, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, now, when the Global Times reported that she had done this on Twitter, on Weibo... Yeah. So, did you find, um, so the Global Times reported that she had tweeted this um, on Weibo... And this was, a, a, I guess, a dig at, at US domestic politics. So, yes. Yeah. And the reaction was quite surprising. So... Um, along with uh, the sort of responses that you would expect from people who are fans of the Global Times worldview, um, who supported her view, there were also hundreds, if not thousands, of people who posted back, I can't tweet. Mm. Um, now, this was just uh, a, cu- a couple of weeks after there was a big flare-up on Weibo when a man was arrested in um, in the northeastern pr- province of Shanxi for um, using a VPN. And um, when that was reported, there was a more general uproar on Weibo. Um, people were complaining, why do we have this law? Why aren't we allowed to jump the Great Firewall as well? Especially when we can see that the uh, that these Chinese wolf warrior diplomats are using it every day. If they're allowed to, why can't we? And so they, they see reflections because it is occasionally reported on the Global Times. Is that is that how people know? Yeah, you generally see um, when these wolf warrior diplomats think that they've uh, uh, been uh, successful on Twitter in their messaging, then there will be screenshots of that and it will, it will be reported uh, in the Chinese media. One of the really interesting events that I've noticed was when Daryl Morey, the NBA general manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeted in support of the Hong Kong protests. And he just got piled on by a whole heap, um, tens of thousands of new accounts with very few followers piling on, attacking him. Um, and the, the the hashtag or the phrase they use is NMSL, Nima Sela, I think. <laughs> which is your mother is dead. And that seemed like a coordinated state-based action. But looking at it, it's perhaps just a whole heap of Chinese nationalists jumping the firewall to a- attack Daryl in this case. To me, that brings up all sorts of interesting questions about when is... This is kind of coordinated because they organise behind the firewall. It could be authentic because... Perhaps they do believe this. Yet at the same time, in a sense, it's allowed by the state because if they, it seems like if if the PRC wanted to shut this down, they would. Do you agree with that? Could they shut it down if they wanted to? Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, I think what's happening there is this uh, interplay between Chinese state media um, and uh, these internet users. So um, 
we see from time to time, normally when China is, uh, uh, or Beijing, I should say, is unhappy with a, a particular country, or in, in the case that you mentioned, a particular manager at, a, at the NBA. Yeah, yeah, and from an Australian point of view, that's also happened to Mac Horton as well. So it's, it's not a unique thing. It's yeah. happened many times. Yeah, and so the normal sort of um, play that you see is that um, there's genuine feeling out there um, that people are upset about whatever has been said or whatever has taken place. The Chinese state media, and normally the Global Times plays a big part in this, will throw out this red meat to their uh, readers um, through their newspaper, their website, and via uh, WeChat and Weibo. And that stirs up a lot of anger and that spurs a lot of these people to jump the, f- the firewall and um, attack whoever these um, targets are. Now, to sort of zoom out a little bit, what we've seen in terms of how people are technically able to do this uh, is that uh, virtual private networks, the VPNs that these Chinese internet users are using to jump the Great Firewall, there has been a big crackdown on them. And so what we're seeing in general is that uh, VPNs that Beijing can't surveil and control are being pushed to the side. I think what we will see increasingly is that these internet users will be um, relegated to VPNs that Beijing does control. And so in a sense, even though they're jumping the Great Firewall, Beijing will still have a a leash on these uh, other wolf warriors. So that's fascinating in that it's authentic, state-supported action to attack people online on Twitter and perhaps Facebook as well. Thanks very much, Fergus. Thanks, Tom. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Thanks for joining us. Registrations are now open for the virtual 2020 ASPE conference. The agenda and full details are online now. If you'd like to join in the discussion, you can always tweet us at aspe underscore org. Thanks for listening.